<laughs> yeah, that's that's the way to start a show. <laughs> Hey everybody and welcome to episode Z's. Yes, 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 yes. You're getting the Z's in there. It's the Z's for this episode, which is very, very appropriate. This is episode 008. I did quite a lot of research into the Bonds, 006007. Trevelyan is 006. Alec Trevelyan. That was Sean Bean. Yes. Right? Uh, Who should be called uh, Sean bon- Ben or Sean Bond. Sheen Sheen Bean. Yeah. He, he's using yeah one side or the other. Anyway, pick sorry. one, Sean. Pick one. Yeah. Uh, this is the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food without pouring piping hot gravy all over myself. The first person, I'm just I'm doing this off the cuff to tell me what that's a reference from, will get a shout out on the next episode because I can't think of anything better to give you. Will, how are you? You're in quite an interesting predicament at the moment where you are. I am. I am. For for those that don't know, um, most of my state is on fire right now. Uh, Northern California is suffering one of the worst uh, wildfire breakouts in living memory. It's the deadliest in, in history. In California yeah, history. it's, it's kind of crazy, and it's 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 in um, wine country, an area that um, myself, and my wife, um, spend a lot of time. Kate, my wife, spent um, actually wrote a very nice uh, post a couple of days ago on Facebook about how um, you know we always look at, at Sonoma, Napa as our. Uh, our getaway it's a place you can drive for an hour and feel like you're on vacation in like italy or 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 france and for it to be this place that we see as our refuge just is completely up in flames is it's heartbreaking and then so many other places that we go to are completely destroyed because of these fires um an interesting food tidbit there is that 2017s that were bottled prior to the fire are going to be exponentially more expensive because of the strategy which is kind of sad but yeah we've had uh about a week and a half now of of fires and i was mentioning off air that um the air quality is actually worse than shanghai in the greater bay area specifically in east bay more than um than san francisco obviously it's way worse up in the north bay where the fires are but where we are because of the way that the bay works um it's just sitting over us and uh, they have this ranking, but it's like particulates per million. And uh, if the ranking gets into 200, it means the uh, entire population would have breathing difficulties and not be able to really go outside. And for a while, we were at like 195. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I had to walk. I walked. There's about a mile between North Berkeley Bar and my house that I walk every day. And coming home after work yesterday, I was I was out of breath within about five minutes of walking. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just really bad at the moment. And it's such a shame. I mean, you see some of the drone footage that's come out of Santa Rosa. It looks like it's been nuked. It's it's a real tragedy. Yeah, yeah my boss lives in Santa Rosa and has been evacuated for the last week and a half. Yeah, it's I can see it. I think I you know I hope I hope everyone up there is doing well and that uh, that things get back to normal pretty pretty soon. But you know it's it's been crazy to watch. You know, all of the, the eight and a half thousand firefighters are trying to trying to tackle it. I think. It, the, a loose connection from from a wine perspective is Eric Wareheim, who's the Eric part of Tim and Eric, who's, who are very, very funny people. He's a big wine guy. He started a winery and he is auctioning off one of his uh, very rare bottles of wine that he produced from his wine vineyard with all the money going to the, to those guys up there. So if you go to Las Jara, I think it is, L-A-S-J-A-R-A-S wines.com. Oh, no, L-A-S-J-A-R-S.com. They're auctioning off all the money goes to to um, fire relief and recovery uh, in the in the greater North Bay area. So get involved in that. Yeah, and closer to home, we're actually um, taking donations for all the displaced animals. Uh, we just did a uh, a round of do- of um, collection, and we're able to donate about two hundred dollars worth of uh, food and uh, essential pet uh, stuff to uh, the local uh, animal shelters up there. So um, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, but a lot of cats, animals, and dogs, whatever, get left behind, and sometimes they need someone to step in and and help them out. So that's what we're trying to do as well. And how do people get involved in that? Uh, you can tweet me directly at uh, William Hunter and can uh, point you in the direction of a couple of different agencies that are taking donations. Our local uh, boarding center that we board our dog at, Metro Dog, is taking donations as well. So tweet me and I can point you in the right direction. So get involved in that. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about the wine or anything else that comes up from up there. People are, are dying and they're they're losing their homes. But 
Because of the context of this podcast, we can talk a little bit about the wine wine situation. And interestingly, I read an article today that the Livermore Valley, which is another big wine area and also happens to be the town in which Will was born and that I grew up in and my wife is from, uh, is also another huge wine area. And they have seen a 4x increase in visitors in the last week. People who would ordinarily go to Napa are going to to the Livermore Valley to experience some of their great wines as well. So that's a very small silver lining in this otherwise very sad, sad time for the for the greater California area. So fingers crossed it all gets resolved soon. So before we get into 008, let's talk about 007 gin. We, we're a little off piste. Thank you again to Keith for well, – I learned so much from that segment. Really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah he he – he, uh... He enjoyed it, and I was chatting with him. It was his birthday a couple of days ago, and I was uh, happy birthday, up. Keith. I was ha- having a drink with him, oh, dinner with him, sorry. And uh, we we were chatting about it, and I was basically saying that like a lot of people have reached out to me. Like, there's stuff that you just don't think about, like how you apply the order in which you add something to a glass to make a cocktail. Obviously, makes a difference because it is a you know there's ice involved, there is stirring involved, and like adding ice first versus I you know wherever you do. And then the other one, which is everyone thinks, oh yeah, I'll keep my liquor cold, and yeah, they'll that keep was it in the a new fridge. one to me. That was really yeah. interesting to learn. But it's basic fluid dynamics. If something is cold, is going to be more viscous, and that's not what you want when you're making a cocktail. You want it to be evenly distributed. Yeah, I, yeah. Again, it's one of those things where I've always seen people keep bottles of vodka in the freezer, and I was like, "Oh, that doesn't freeze because it's basically pure alcohol, pure ethanol." But didn't even think about how it might screw up your whatever you're going to make out of it. But thank you, Keith. We had some feedback. Uh, our good friend Valerie Gibson, who shout out to Valerie. Thank you for listening. And I saw Valerie a couple of years ago in London. She came over for a visit with a friend with her friend Brian, and she told me this a couple of days ago that she and Brian went to Jensen's Gin in Bermondsey and said it was one of her favorite stops. And they went to this place and had a gin and rhubarb tonic. And it was a revelation. Uh, rhubarb, rhubarb is one of the... is a, I think that would go really well as a G&T. I think it's got the, the cucumbery, celery type of freshness that would work really, really well in a gin and tonic. Rhubarb is one of those ingredients that I never really, um, really got into. I know, but, me uh... neither. I do have a, a slight quick anecdote on it on rhubarb if you have a if we have a second. We used to love it so much, the British used to love it so much that uh, it was coming from I believe it was coming from China at one point and it's being it was used as a slight laxative because um, it's got those properties uh, and that during the uh, war between Victoria the Victorian British uh, and China uh, the Chinese uh, government basically said if they don't cease hostilities, they're going to cut off all rhubarb um, shipments to England, uh, forcing the entire country to be bunged up and die of mass constipation. Uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting strategy. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, that's my one my one on, uh, on rhubarb there. That was a great tidbit from Valerie. I'm going to go to Jensen's next time. I'm, I'm in London. Bermondsey is very easy to get to. Uh, and try this this gin and rhubarb tonic. When I, I was down in the West Country a few weeks ago and I stumbled across clotted cream gin. I'm not 100% sure how that works. Like all of the other floral flavors and, you know, the, the herbs, basically anything you could you could put in a still, I get how you might be able to get that flavor. I don't get how you would do clotted cream I guess it's kind of like how like Smirnoff or, or, or Svedko or whoever they are does like cupcake vodka. Like it's not a natural process. It's probably yeah, like flavorants added after. I have no idea. I want to know what's in it and how they make it. And if it's <laughs> if it's like, you know, uh, are they synthesizing the flavors of clotted cream? cream? And, if, and if you can do that, how do you how do you do that? But you know, it wasn't cheap either. Where I, it was like for a bottle, regular size bottle, it was forty quid. That, that well, you know, the niche market gin drinker probably would buy it for the novelty factor. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, do, I, I'm, I'm mildly offended that this even exists, and I'm not a big gin guy. So if you've tried it, I sent it to my friend Becky, who's a big, I was gonna say a big gin drinker, but that makes her sound like a, a rummy. She is a, she appreciates gin on a more refined level than most of us do. Uh, and knows crap when she sees it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she just sent me the, the, the sort of the chin scratching emoji back when I sent her a picture of it going, you know, and I, that, that was all you needed to say. Um, what are you drinking this fine 
Saturday, mixing it up a little bit. Yeah, uh, today I am drinking, um, and I'll be very happy if you get the reference here. It is a uh, Pilsner from Headland Brewing in uh, California. Uh, very nice, very very crisp. And the name of the Pilsner is Point Benita. I'm hoping Point that Benita. Yes, I'm hoping that you uh, that you do a voice right now. Is it a Casa Benita thingy? Yes. It's not. It's not by them. But whenever I see Benita, I have to go Casa Benita. <laughs> if you're not watching the latest season of South Park, it's very very good. My bro- other brother Andrew and I were were laughing about it just the other day. It's it's very funny. Well, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but uh, it was a last minute thing. I am drinking a tumbler of Auchentoshan single malt whiskey, Scotch whiskey. Nice. And I'm raising it to our grandfather, nice. Grandpa Jock, who passed away last week at the age of 90, 97 years old. <laughs> and the funny thing is, he didn't really like Scotch. Our, our grandfather was the quintessential Jock. Uh, that's why we call him like Scottish man. And, you know, everything about him, he sounded, he looked, looked and acted a bit like Grandpa Simpson, but, um, you know, had, <laughs> had, the, true. had the thickest Scottish accent, even though he hadn't lived in Scotland for about 40 years. Um, longer than that. Yeah. Well, he just traveled the world and is the most interesting man in the world. And yes, we always associate, you know, the fact that he probably sat there in the evenings in his youth drinking uh, bottles of Laphroaig by, you know, by himself. But yeah, I don't think he ever was that massively. He wasn't a big Scotch guy. Yeah, I always, I always remember when going down to see him, asking my dad, hey, "Should I bring a bottle of scotch?" He's like, "Not a big scotch drinker, not a big scotch drinker." So I, th- I think it was just, you know, a good reason to break out a good scotch. And I, I'm, I'm not a big scotch guy, but this is this is pretty good. Auchentoshan even has the pronunciation guide on the back, I, I can't, which I'm sure I've butchered. I can't do PD at this all. This is not PD. I can do. This is. Uh, I, I know probably I'm going to get um, hate from our family, but I've actually started really liking Irish whiskey. I find that it's just very, very nice. Do you know who's a who? I'll tell you who's a really big Irish whiskey connoisseur. Who's that? Sir Greg Barnes. Really? Sir Greg Barnes, who is the maestro and creative genius behind the internationally acclaimed and <laughs> award-winning travel series, Attaché. If you've never heard of it, you should check it out. I've heard really good things. <laughs> uh, he's a big Irish Irish whiskey drinker. Well, Greg, so I've been drinking some uh, Red Breast, and it's been very nice. Uh, I- so uh, right. actually, get in touch, folks, if you are whiskey drinkers, because we're a little bit away from, but not that far away from what. And we weren't going to do an episode about Will, but <laughs> we might do an episode. I can't promise, but I want to know if you if you like whiskey or scotch and if you're, what you're drinking. I'd be interested to know because it's something I I used to drink a reasonable amount of. And then here's an interesting tidbit. Actually, it's not interesting at all, but I'm going to say it anyway. About five years ago, I lost 55 pounds. I went on this spiritual quest and dropped a bunch of weight. And before then, I drank a lot of scotch. But then you after drunk? then, I couldn't... You, you, you drunk, sorry? I drank a lot of scotch. <laughs> Are you drunk? Uh, to get drunk. <laughs> and, but after I lost all the weight, and I obviously removing alcohol from my diet was one of the things that helped me lose all the weight. But when I got back on off the wagon, on the wagon, yeah. depending which wagon you're talking about, I couldn't t- I couldn't even put it in my mouth. It tastes like soap. Really? Yeah. Huh. It was weird. Uh, and it took, well, up until about six months ago for me to, to be able to actually taste, uh, to taste scotch again. So I know I've heard a lot of people say the same things that when they do... Drastic weight loss like that, it completely changes the way, you know, you. I can't have milk in coffee anymore. I think it's like triggers some weird memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I'll have to look into that. Maybe we do a science episode of the, the science of uh, the science of the palate uh, as our... Well, there, you yeah, know, our other brother can be your guinea pig because he had a stem cell transplant. And I'm really interested to know if it's changed any of his taste things <laughs> i think it's too early to tell we'll have to we'll have to get him on the show as a guest uh at some point yeah, just to talk about absolutely it. so uh moving on into uh food as we are primarily a food podcast uh what was the best thing that you ate uh since we last recorded i'm hesitant to even mention this because it's the context of the of the of what i ate is a little is um is sad really but like i said in the previous episode i was just about to go to to Las Vegas and I went to Las Vegas and I and I I had a good time. I like Vegas. I think Vegas gets a good rap even after the tragedy that happened. I'm you know, I, I, I thought that before. I, I still think it's a great place. I think it gets a lot of stick. People turn their noses up at it, but it's a great city. And 
I did mention off the cuff that I was going to try and get some in and out and I did. I tell you, I did San Francisco, uh, pardon me, London, San Francisco, two hours in San Francisco and then down to Vegas. I got to Vegas at like, got to my hotel at like 1030 at night, threw my stuff in my hotel room and went straight to in and out which is the one that I went to is, um, oh, I don't even remember. Anyway, I went there. It was just glorious. It was so good. It was just so good. In and out makes me happy. So that was the best thing you had. I had a double double animal style. Yeah, because I went back to England. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, that's harsh, but yes, I get what you're saying. It is harsh. I'm just Uh, and I actually haven't I haven't traveled much. I haven't been out much. Just surprising for you. So I would say that the best thing I had actually was only a couple of days ago. Again at at, um, Keith's birthday, we went to this new place uh, called China Live, which sounds like like one of those places where they have the hot plate and they do all the tricks. But it's not one of those. It's this kind of like. Yeah, it's kind of one of these higher end, uh, it's a high end dim sum place, which is a bit of an oxymoron. But um, yeah, so you're sitting on like communal tables and stuff like that. And it's got this market area in the back where you can wait. And it's got like super high end like walks and and, uh, knives and stuff like that you can keep yourself busy with. But um, yeah, we went there and and did some some dim sum, had some... um, some great dumplings, but the best thing I had was um, the crispy pork belly, and it came out and it came out in the cubes, and it was just by itself, it was just unbelievably good with the with the crisp crackling skin on there, and it had, and maybe you'll tell me because I can't remember, and it had like a dipping sauce on alongside it, which is your typical sort of hoisin house sauce, but next to it, what I thought was salt was a white powder, and it was sweet. I guess it's sugar. It was crack. Yeah, it was crack. It was straight up crack. But it was it was it was sweet, so I'm guessing it was a sugar thing. But it, you know, because a lot of the times you, they do do sugar in in uh, pork belly, but as part of the process to make the skin uh, crispy. But uh, it was good. It was really really good. I don't know. I'm intrigued. You have to go back and find out what it was. If you do know what it was, and you're listening, please tell us. Yes. Solve this mystery. Yes. I'm very envious. Next time I come to San Francisco, what is it in San Francisco? Yeah, it's on Columbus in North Beach. That's what I miss about living in London. Or anywhere that's got a little bit of life <laughs> culture. Not a one horse. Town. I mean, pub food is wonderful and and it's great, and we are very fortunate to have you know Michelin star pubs around us. But you don't get that kind of cosmopolitan experimentation yeah. and innovation and cosmopolitan and multiculturalism uh, out in the Shire, as our other brother calls it, <laughs> as you do in London. So on to our topic du jour. You tweeted out on the Mastication Nation Twitter account, which is at mastication ntn follow us you said any guesses on our h episode here are some hints it never spoils it's ancient ancient egyptians loved it and royalty is involved hashtag podcast and a few people uh figured it out our brother said huevos rancheros it doesn't spoil it just matures (laughs) those of you that guessed honey all right honey so it's an interesting choice. It is. It is. I think, you know, in the quite a lot of research that both of us did, it's something that is, again, so central to so many different cultures, you know, ancient and uh, and modern, uh, that it's something that needed its own episode to discuss uh, as a contentious, contentious ingredient as well as we'll get into. It is. Yeah, it is mildly. Con- yeah, it is kind of contentious. I think uh, as I was researching it, uh, it is a very, very interesting thing. As an ingredient, I'll, I'll you know I'd fight somebody to say it wasn't. Uh, I don't think it's that interesting, but we'll, we'll we'll pull that apart. But as a thing, it's very very interesting. Oh, and shout out to my friend Noel, who is a listener, because uh, she figured this out straight away. And your clues were very good. I think there's a Radio Four <laughs> trivia sort of two and a two thirty in the afternoon on a on a Wednesday, just before the school Will's run. Yeah, food. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think honey's complicated, more complicated than you think, because it's very. It's very nuanced. It's very multi-layered uh, for what it is as a a thing, how it's produced, how it's harvested, why that pr- process is important. It's it's used throughout history in a mul- in a multitude of different ways. But what at its base level is it? And don't say bee shit. It, well, it's not. It's bee backwash. It, okay, it, that's better. <laughs> uh, but it it's the only it's the only product that's the only thing that is manufactured by animals in the world that obviously are not humans and i was like what about milk well milk is just the natural process that people use for i mean animals and mammals use for uh sustaining life but but honey is 
a battery basically it's um you know it's 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 the food source for for bees and and it's converting pollen which is raw energy into uh, a form of ingestible product in the form of yeah because honey. it is what they it's what bees exist on isn't it yeah. it's not it's not their i mean it's it is nectar but it's not what they produce to they have like a factory process where they go and take the raw materials and they have a process which then turns it into a product which they consume. Yeah. And then we, when we'll get into the harvesting, quote unquote, harvesting process in a minute, but then we take the excess that they don't consume. So in right there, it's already established itself as utterly unique in the, in the food world as being a product and not a, um, you know, something that's, that's sustains life from within. So as you said, yeah, so it, it starts as this nectar, which which the flowers produce. And we're not going to go that far back into the production process. Otherwise, we're going to be here all night. But the the bees extract it. You see them everywhere doing their thing. And their their production process, which I mentioned earlier, when they bring it back to the hive, they uh, break it down into those very basic, simple sugars, which are then stored in this beautiful work of natural art called a honeycomb and bees are geniuses and i think that that's what's so interesting about this even you know say what you want about honey the process of its creation and the creatures that create it are just fascinating the design of the honeycomb is done for a reason it's incredibly efficient for the processes required to create honey and the bees and i saw this i saw an uh, image of this or actually a video of this on reddit yesterday and it got me thinking you know actually the timing couldn't have been more perfect but bees they bring this stuff into the hive they put it in the honeycombs the, the honeycomb that they've created and they're constantly fanning their wings to regulate the temperature within the hive and of the honeycomb which i only learned about this yesterday that causes evaporation to happen so you're extracting the liquid from this these simple sugars that they've created, which creates this honey, at the at the at the simplest simplest form. That's how it's created. So it's like climate controlled swamp heater <laughs> type of process. Like they know, oh, it's too hot. Everybody start fanning to to start this process, and the the liquid that comes out through this evaporation that they have they've done on purpose is is this wonderful honey. And I just think that that's. That's unbelievable. But there's a further process, and this touches on your backwash thing. Not only are they fanning it by uh, – cooling it by fanning it with their wings, the, the bees are spitting water onto the interior walls of the hive to, to further reduce the temperature and then fanning it just like us yeah. sweating to evaporate it. And that's kind of exactly how a swamp cooler works, which is disgusting when you say it like that, but we still consume staggering amounts of this stuff. Yeah. I think that it's it, the honeycomb thing as well. It's the most efficient form against the amount that it can store. So there are more strong shapes um, in nature. Triangles generally are the strongest shapes in nature. However, they're not that great for storing a lot of surface area. I mean, sorry, a lot of um, internal volume. So uh, the 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 shape of a of a honeycomb is the apex of balance between strength and uh, internal volume. It's amazing, I, and they, they just figured that out. You know, they just they figured it out over hundreds of millions of years that this is the most efficient structure for their particular process, and a honey uh, hive or hive will produce about 65 pounds of surplus honey a year. And it can range for anything between 20 to 100 pounds of surplus honey, meaning they've taken what they need to exist to subsist and, and last through the winter. And that's 65 pounds of stuff that it's okay for us to take because they're not going to use it. 65 pounds every year. On average, one honeybee produces one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey over the course of its life. So, math nerds among you would have already figured this out. To produce a single pound, and remember we're talking 65 pounds for, per hive, to produce a single pound of honey, a colony of bees has got to collect nectar from two million flowers and fly 55,000 miles to do so. And that's that's a lifetime's worth of work for about a thousand bees. And this is one of those interesting points, like everyone's talking about how the honeybee is 
is endangered and it's going to have a massive knock-on effect because no, yeah. they, they you know they have they pollinate a lot of stuff for us um and which is you know one of the, the side effects uh, 20 billion dollars worth of u.s crops every year are pollinated by by bees alone it's a third of all food eaten by americans are either directly or indirectly pollinated from or derived from honeybee pollen yeah, and everyone's like, "Oh well, no, you know they're they're dying out because their internal uh, compasses are are messed up because of all of our electromagnetic stuff." That is, as the British say, bollocks. Yes, it's to do with the fact that we're just destroying their environment and they we're messing up the climate too much that they don't have enough of these two. What do you say, two million flowers that they got to go find? If you start like destroying the environment, they don't have any enough stuff. Before we get into into honey itself, and it, honey is interesting. Uh, and, you know, bees are undoubtedly critical to the survival of humans, frankly. I mean, the amount of, like I just said, they, they are directly or indirectly responsible for a third of all the food that America eats. Without bees, we would be completely screwed. However, as, and I'm going to quote Reddit user Spartan Wrecker, these cute little bastards are murdering maniacs. And <laughs> this guy on Reddit, this, like I said, this came out yesterday, he wrote the most fascinating overview yeah. of 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 life in a hive and the 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 kind of the social social structure of a of a hive that i'm just gonna i'm gonna pick a few points here because it really shows they're not just you know we, we look at them and say oh they're getting the, the stuff from the flower they go into an into the hive and amazing honey comes out the end of it no the workers are considered the quote-unquote lowest tier of organism in the super organism of the hive and they do everything if the queen isn't laying eggs they ball around her and suffocate her while suffocate her while also cooking her at the same time okay uh, if the queen didn't get laid after her third flight out they kill her it now if they killed her then they need a queen so they make 30 queens and the first one that gets out of their little little larva cell has to go and find all 29 other ones and stab them to death in their cells before they can fight back so You've got the drones, which are the only male bees that are sitting around not doing any uh, anything because they're, you know, in the local basically drone pub. And every few days they're going out to look for the for the queen to to get with. And then if one of them, let's call him Bill, is able to have romantic relationships with the queen, uh, then his organs explode and he falls to his death. And then he gets to do this, the, the, whoever watches that gets to do the same thing with a queen after they extract Bill's dick from the queen. Okay. Yeah. So then winter comes and the worker bees say to the drones, winter is coming and you're still alive. And that's a problem. So the drones are either slaughtered throughout the hive and their bodies dumped outside or they're kicked out. And since they physically can't get pollen or nectar because they don't have the bodies or the physical appendages to do that. They'd starve to death. So winter's here, and there's no flowers. They can't leave the hive where they'll die, and they can't poop in the hive. So they hold it all in, speaking of Chinese rhubarb strategy, till it gets warmer. The rectum of the bees then grows to take up the majority of their bodies. We've, we've all been there. That's the same as if our rectum could suddenly grow to the point if it would brush against our lungs. That's horrific. Consider that for a moment, those of you that are eating food right now. Okay, so it's summer. The hive. Oh, shit. Greg. We'll call this bee Greg. Uh, your wings aren't paired probably, properly. We need to kill you. Uh, so we're the majority of our food as bees. Better eat the babies because they've got protein. They are bees psychopaths. <laughs> hey, and again, credit to this Reddit user, Spartan Wrecker. I'll post a link on the Mastication Nation Twitter account to this comment. He's he's clearly a beef. He loves the stuff, really knows a lot about it. In an edit, because apparently this comment did and should have blown up, uh, post some links to some really interesting things about bees. What's hilarious about that is that, you know, certain vegans uh, don't eat honey because they think it's cruel. Nothing we can do is crueler than their own existence. It's just like, yeah, are you kidding me? Pure Lord of the Flies, literally. Yeah, well, not literally, but almost literally. Lord, Lord of the Bees. Lord um, of the Bees. It's like, oh my god, it's <laughs> tribal at best. But you know, they're not nothing if not industrious. Anything for the uh, for the survival of the hive. So why don't we just jump into what they actually produce and how it gets into <laughs> yeah, if you our... Can, if you can live with yourself eating it now, now that you've heard what happens. 
Exactly. So basically what happens is that the cells that are filled with uh, honey are, uh, are capped by, by beeswax, by, by the... Um, by the bees for storage, and as Alex mentioned, the surplus um, in these in these hives, beekeepers can um, scrape off the, the the cap, as it were, and then drain out the the liquid honey. They use centrifuges to spin it away from um, the, the 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 hives themselves, or the sorry the uh, the racks, um, and let that all drain into a, a large vat, often filled with bits of honeycomb, bits of um, bee parts. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. As we just heard. Yes, exactly. And so some people prize this because they think that the bee parts give it some sort of uh, magical Magic elixir. Powers, yeah. yeah, exactly. But then it's usually strained and put into the the um, uh, plastic bear that we all know and squeezes out of his head. Um, that's generally the, the, the simplified version of how you get it. Sometimes you can find honey that still has part of the comb in there, which is edible if, if, that's, your, if that's your jazz. I'm not the biggest fan of it. Um, it doesn't do anything for me because it's just the way I use honey in a lot of cooking is uh, as much of a, using it as a liquid as much as possible, and I don't want to have chunks in there. But at its base level, honey is... 80% sugar and 20% water. And the rules in the US, and I'm not sure if it's the same in the EU, but uh, you hear about honey, you hear about then the different varieties of honey, so like honey blossom, clover, alfalfa, which are all varietals of, of honey. And basically that means that if 80% of the 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 nectar, the the pollen that was picked was from one specific plant, it can be called that varietal. So clover honey means 80% of the of the nectar came from clover. Otherwise, and it's not a bad thing, it's like blended scotch. It's saying, you know, that it's come from multiple different places and it's it's just as good, but you might not have that specific flavor. And and that's something that's really important is honeys often taste like what they were made out of. You know, further to that, of the flowers that were predominantly used for the pollination. And it really does run the gamut. I, you know, I know I talk about Beirut a lot. I think it really shows the impression that city had on me. But one of the things that we did when we were there is we went to this, uh, to this honey, artisanal honey shop. And they had all these different types of honey along this huge wall. It was, it was staggeringly beautiful. It was like stepping into a room made out of amber. And the color difference difference across all of the honeys was incredible, and it's because some were from an area where there was a lot of orange blossom to you know all these other different types of flowers. And actually, interesting, Lebanon is one of the only places in the world where the bees can produce honey year round because there's always somewhere in Lebanon where there is something. There flowering. are flowers. It's yeah. one of the very few places in the world. But they actually do like almost crop rotation with the bees. So they're not producing 12 months of the year. Otherwise, they would be exhausted. So they take them and they, they you know, send them to a turkey for a holiday or something. But Well, you, um, can, you can now and you can trick um, the hives by putting the hive or, or enclosing the hive in uh, climate controlled situations or just, you know, that kind of stuff to make them think that it's starting to wintertime. And it also forces different reactions within the hive that can, you know, uh, put the manufacturing schedule more on a human's time timeline I, which is incredible and i think uh that by the way listen what? That's uh, that this is the first time that alex in our, in, our, in our eight episodes has actually refilled his drink during the podcast uh that you've heard <laughs> but so going back to the point about the not just the color changing but when you see like orange blossom honey, it's not been flavored with some artificial like, you know, Robinson's orange squash or any artificial flavor. It's because the bees, as you said, 80, 80 plus percent of the bees have been in the proximity of orange blossom. And you really can taste the orange blossom or whatever else is around that they've been doing. It's, it's quite extraordinary how that flavor gets transferred all the way through that process. Even though it's a, it's it sounds like as you mentioned a, a very labor intensive pro, um, um, production. There's minimal adjustments to the sugars as far as the the base flavorings and, and as you mentioned. And I'll get onto that in a little a little more in the sense that honey is a fantastic thing, but it does bring with it a lot of whatever it was made out of, and for for better or worse. But to sort of dive into some of the clues I was throwing out there, obviously we've talked about the royalty being the queen. Queen. Uh, one of the first things I mentioned was it lasts forever, and people like hear this as a myth or whatever. This is not a myth. Honey. Nope. 
lasts forever. Honey, and so, uh, I think Alton Brown said this, honey is mummified energy. Um, oh, and, that's nice. Yeah. And so basically, why is it, why is, why does it last forever? It, it, it lasts forever because it's hygroscopic, which basically means it pulls water out of things. So water is one of the things that causes things to rot. It's, it's a lot, it's, it's something that is so key to what makes life life and so you know what are you doing when you're making jerky you're pulling the water out of it what are you doing when you're mummifying a human you're pulling the water out of it um and so right then and there you're making it in inhospitable inhospitable sorry for the bacteria and the microbes that would cause something to break down That's isn't it also crazy high ph or crazy well, low pH. Crazy low. It's 3.9. Acidic. The, yeah, the average is 3.9 uh, on the pH scale. Uh, Whoa. Can go down as three to 3.1, which is basically citrus juice. And that is incredibly um, aggressive towards any sort of... Um, uh, you know, my, micro trying to get in there. So those are the two big ones. There are other factors of different honeys having, you know, chemicals in there that just, you know, straight up do not allow things to grow. Um, but those- what I found another one that was kind of interesting as a little byproduct of this enzyme that bees have in their stomach, that when they're breaking down the nectar, uh, one of the byproducts of that, so the gluconic acid, which is kind of what gives it the sweet flavor. Then the other one is hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, which then, which is a great way of producing, uh, of preventing the growth of bacteria or any other, um, you know, pathogen or damaging thing. So it, put on your skin when you have a cut. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we'll we'll touch on that in a second because that's 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 actually tangentially or directly related, actually. But that's it, honey really does last forever. It does not go off. It does not spoil. And, and if you does spoil, you don't have honey. Yeah. And so, so um, we know that this is you know we know that that lasts forever. Uh, we've always heard these these stories, and one of the famous ones is Alexander the Great, who was said to be uh, entombed in honey and preserved in honey. Um, and and so back then, the Macedonians knew that it was you know, it had these properties. Um, but diving into that real quick, it is a bit of a half truth that he was embalmed in honey. Yes, he was embalmed in honey by his successor, who was his the protege. I'm forgetting his name. Um, but it was purely so that he could wheel the dead body of Alexander the Great around to show off to the entire empire that was what Alexander the Great had taken over and be like, look what he did. He's this amazing man. And he didn't want him just, you know, uh, falling apart on the uh, on, on the road to uh, the <laughs> colonized thing. So it was only about, roughly for about three years that he was put into honey and then he was pulled out and buried like normal. Um, that's why there's a bit of an argument like, well, he, he's rotted and we don't see him now. It's like, well, yes. And then the other one is ancient Egyptians who have been cultivating honey for about 8,000 years. Egyptians loved this so much that, you know, pharaohs would be buried with it. Uh, and a few years ago, they found a jar of honey that was 3,000 years old that was still edible. You know, the, generally when you look at a, a, a jar of honey that has a uh, sell-by date on it, it's for the jar or the glass or the plastic itself de- degrading, not the honey, which is insane. Yeah. It's incredible, really. And and. They also figured out the well, I mean, as far back as ancient Mesopotamia, that that not only was it super yummy, delicious, it was also pretty good at treating a certain medical issues. And and there are many things, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that that has been falsely attributed to the um, efficacy of honey. But these are true. They figured out that if you, because it's so inhospitable to bacteria, as we talked about, because it never spoils. It was often, and to an extent, still is used as a natural band-aid to protect cuts and burns from infections. Mm-hmm. It's still used as a as a natural treatment. That doesn't necessarily, by any stretch of the imagination, mean it's the best, but a natural treatment for dandruff, literally rubbing it into your scalp, stomach ulcers, and and seasonal allergies. It sounds to me, Will... Yeah. As if you're suffering from seasonal allergies. Yeah, I'm struggling, and I apologize if you've been hearing me sniff in the in the podcast. But um, I have a combination of, of seasonal allergies and being allergic to a cat of which I own. And I'm I'm going to suggest that you perhaps didn't think that decision through. <laughs> uh, you, you can't say no to the love of your life when she wants to get a cat. So um, I have a I have a that was very diplomatic. Yes, I have a HEPA um uh 
what's the word looking for air purifier in the bedroom and maybe i should like smear some honey over it and see if that works well here's the thing honey is amazing it how it's produced is amazing it's important is amazing the fact that it never goes off is amazing the fact that it can legitimately and effectively treat cuts and scrapes and bruises against you know temporarily until you can seek professional medical attention against bacteria and infection incredible but that thing about allergies brings us to an important point there have been a lot of health and wellness attributes that have been applied to honey that just i think have gotten a little bit carried away like allergies one of them some people think that if you take the honey that is produced in the area of the flower that you are allergic to that you will get superpowers and be able to repel the <laughs> allergy uh, n- it's crap no yeah there's no scientific evidence to support that uh, i mean you know if it helps you mentally think that you're getting better I apologize if we just burst your uh, your placebo bubble. Yeah, I'm. I th- you know I think it's. I think it has to be. You have to be careful with stuff like that. I, uh, you know, it was interesting when I was researching this this particular episode. There were so many articles and blog posts about you know the miracle of honey and all of these things that can do for you and how much so much better for you than sugar, and so much of that stuff, unfortunately or fortunately, is just not true. You know, people think that because honey is natural, it's better for you. Well, sugar is natural too. I'm not, I'm not promoting the overconsumption of of sugar, but it's just you know to say that that the honey is better for you than sugar. In fact, a teaspoon of honey contains 23 calories and six grams of sugar, and a teaspoon of sugar contains only 16 calories and four grams of sugar. Honey is sweeter, so you actually need less of it to to get that sweet taste, but Let's not go saying that it's nutritionally better for you because it's just not true. And the other thing I think that, is, that was interesting is that you see all these things about, you know, honey can help uh, a sore throat or a cough uh, or colds or, or respiratory infections or allergies. Like we mentioned, there is hardly a shred of scientific evidence to suggest that. So while honey is great, it's not going to get rid of your penile warts or any other ailment that you that you might have it's 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 wonderful but it's not that wonderful yeah so it can actually get you high or kill you if you're not safe um there are these what the yes they there are these stories about the the turkish the eastern european uh caucus uh, areas um where honey was being produced from the rhododendron plant uh which is incredibly poisonous uh if consumed um and to the point where these and is this still going on to this day that these turkish farmers were uh creating honey from rhododendron and then selling it as what they call hot honey hot honey <laughs> exactly right and so it's in the right dosages is about I guess is a bit like um psilocybin mushrooms like it just gets you a little messed up and like you see stuff and and you have uh you're gonna have a bad time you know just not a you know it's a crazy hallucinogen however throughout history this has been used in warfare and so in 65 bce King Mithridates, who was in this general area, uh, was being attacked, being chased through uh, Europe by Pompey, the Roman Empire, not, not the football, football not, club, yeah, not the football team owned by uh, Eisner. Now, um, so what he did was he uh, realized that he was on the losing side here, and he was being chased down by by this army. He got his uh, army to leave pots of this hot honey along the route that uh the roman empire the roman army is going to be chasing them along and then just hid and it was this this rhododendron honey that um you know was just super high concentration of this poison that was in there and so the the roman the roman soldiers stopped to enjoy the sweets and immediately lost all their senses reeling and babbling the men collapsed with vomit and diarrhea and lay on the ground unable to move so the the have you been down the cali road on a friday night then (laughs) it's not much different so king Mithridates was the was in charge of the i'm gonna mispronounce this the heptic 
Kamites, Heptakamites, uh, easily just went in there and just murdered them all. You know, just they were they were all dying on the ground, and they just walked in and killed um, hundreds upon hundreds of the Romans who were high on honey. So, and, and this is not this, the only time people didn't learn. This is the second time I found in the space of about 150 years that they did this to the Romans, which is the, the ridiculous thing. It's pretty amazing, and and. It's 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 in particular the rhododendron that's yes. this particularly and it's I was reading uh, Alton Brown has an aside in one of his books. What's this book called? Well, uh, I'm just here for the I'm just here for the food. That's the one. Honey intoxication, which results from eating the uh, honey containing the rhododendron nectar, that contain that nectar contains gray and toxin, which plays havoc on the central nervous system. So this is what's actually happening for a day or so. It is rarely fatal. But a Roman with a sword is fatal. Yeah, exactly. It's like you or, know, or a heptakamatis. Yes, if you're if you're trying to keep your insides in, um, you're not really paying attention to the hordes of guys surrounding you with large knives. There are a few other plants and the nectars from those that are produced from those plants that have a similar effect, but but rhododendron rhododendron uh, is by far the most potent. And again, there's loads of examples through history of, of this happening. So we've spent like 45 minutes talking about how it's made, uh, who makes it, how it's made, where it comes from, why it's magical, how it will kill you. But we actually haven't talked about how it's used. And I have to, I have to, I mean, we're safely in where we've lost all of the stragglers to the, to this particular episode. So I can safely confess this. I don't like honey. I don't like it. I, I'm I'm I, I don't I I will, I'm not one of those people who's gonna take a spoonful of honey out of the jar, put it in my mouth, and go. Mmm. I don't really like ultra sweet things, but I, honey for me. Um, yeah, I just I haven't learned to appreciate it in any application quite yet. So. I use it a lot in in you know drinks. Uh, although nine, a lot of the times I use simple syrup, um, but also I use it a lot in, in uh, marinades. Um, it's also great for you know as I said, it's hydrotropic, so I pulled out water out of things, so that's helpful. But I'm on the same page as you. Um, corn syrup is uh, terrible for you, but sometimes it does a better job of things. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out like you know there there are it, it's generally used when and all the recipes that I looked up and found. You know, I I poured through. I have maybe forty cookbooks. I love cookbooks. It's like my porn, and I went through a bunch of them, and especially the ones that that you know that do a, a really good job of explaining the science behind things and why you use a particular ingredient as opposed to just listing the ingredients. Maybe twenty percent of them even have an ingredient that includes honey, because they're using sugar, and it just seems in many, not exclusively. But in many instances, it's a it's a sugar substitute, or it's it's a, it's used as a sweetener, which it is really good at because it has, it it is very very sweet. So if you set aside that eighty percent of things where, you know, I'm trying to be quote unquote healthier with this recipe, therefore we're going to use honey instead of sugar. That's where I think you start to get some of these slightly more interesting applications. Like you say, it's great in in uh, in marinades. It's great in in certain types of drinks. Hot toddies. I make of a the... hot. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, forget the medicinal purpose um, properties of a hot toddy. It's nonsense. They're just really satisfying, satisfying drinks. I make a, uh, a this is actually a serious eats recipe, a Greek yogurt cake, which is flour, of Greek yogurt, obviously, um, but it also has it has a quarter of a cup of honey for that floral yeah. sweetness, yeah. but a cup of sugar. So it's just you're just getting a slightly different type of sweetness will, with the honey than you are with the sugar. I will, I will right now give you hands down the best use of honey. It is for dipping your chicken fingers into. You know what's really honey funny? mustard. I told Deanne, my wife, that we were going to do an episode on honey, and just this is just a couple of hours ago, because uh, my wife and I don't talk that much. <laughs> Try and avoid it. She uh, she said, "Oh, honey, I I remember as a kid." One of the sides that you would get as a, 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 a McDonald's for your chicken nuggets was honey, pure honey, not not honey mustard or honey, anything like that. It was just pure honey. And she said, I remember that. I remember being it being so good and so different in the salty, 
uh, crunchy nugget. And she didn't describe it in such poetic terms, but um, <laughs> you know, it was it was like what you see. You don't get that, that it, anymore. But it's interesting that you mentioned that. But honey no, mustard is an interesting thing. Honey like mustard it. is. I like it. And also, you've been to my favorite wing place in the entire world, Boss mm. Pub in Newton, Massachusetts. Boss in Newton, Mass. Yeah. Uh, the go-to there is honey hot. So it's it's um, Frank's red hot sauce. Those are good. Yeah, Frank's red hot sauce butter, which is the base of any um, wing uh, tossed uh, sauce. Uh, and then honey. But to the point of the honey by itself, that is a very, very common thing in certain parts of America. I want to say specifically in the South where you get fried chicken and you'll come with not maple syrup, which is just a weird thing to put on um, fried chicken anyway, unless you're doing chicken and waffles. But you'll get a honey with you know the, the wand and you'll just drizzle it over the top of your fried chicken. So it is kind of normal. So I guess I understand where it was coming from McDonald's. But I don't know. That's a weird one. Uh, as far as as I, with McDonald's, I never saw that. But McDonald's McDonald's keep, won't let me access the U.S. site because I want to see if they still had it. It keeps redirecting me to the U.K. site. Also, it's probably this down something because I, of Szechuan sauce. Yeah, which I actually thought we could do a whole episode on that because it's just been a complete shit show. But I was interested because I certainly remember this from being a kid as well. If you are in America and you're near Mc, well, you're in America. Go to McDonald's and see if they still have it. Well, and also get in touch if you had it. But Again, like when I went to Beirut and I tried, I think, 14 different honeys, which for me was like sticking fingers in my eyes 14 times. <laughs> and I was impressed that I could taste the different. They're like, oh, this one is is pine near pine trees. Got it. Totally tasted it. Super impressive that it transferred the flavor. Mm -hmm. What the hell am I going to do with this? Um, gin and tonic and and you know, weird weird like like it, cocktail as a as an ingredient as a cocktail yeah i get that i get that and i think um you know i have a sarah you're i know you won't listen to this but i'm going to call you anyway my friend sarah always puts tea uh honey in her tea in her english tea so milk and tea instead of sugar she puts honey and you it tastes different i just think it tastes like diabetes so i try and avoid it but perhaps i am overlooking some applications of honey here that wouldn't that would be better than sugar or simple syrup or maple syrup or any other you know applesauce if i'm missing something please tweet at us please because i want to make sure that i'm not doing honey a disservice i also think that as an ingredient no, and it is an interesting ingredient i think we've touched upon it being so important throughout human history but yes the modern culinary applications there are substitutes and generally what we're saying is that if you're using honey for honey's sake it's because of the floral aspects the one thing i want to touch upon is the fact that until i was like 12 I thought that the honey I saw in Hey Boo Boo and all that kind of stuff was uh, was was uh, and 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 what's it called um, uh, Winnie the Pooh was was lying to me because I always saw this is this like thick you know what we know is runny honey but for some reason whenever I was at home or at school we never had runny honey we only ever had smooth honey which I never see anymore it's smooth honey is honey it's exactly the same thing as the, the honey you squeeze out of a out of a bear's head or it's almost like a paste so isn't it's it? called it's creamy like a... honey uh, and the it's exactly the same stuff and it's been created to be able to be spreadable because trying to spread normal honey is like trying to spread concrete it just doesn't work um and what happens it's all caused by crystallization so they seed the honey uh with nucleization points to or crystallization points sorry um to make a very fine to to make the creamy and make this fine texture um and to give you a bit of an analogy um it's all about um crystallization and, and crystal creation within food is is an art form unto itself if you've ever frozen a steak you know not correctly or you've gone to a supermarket and seen a, a puddle of what looks like blood it's not blood don't worry um sitting in, you know your, your meat sitting in, in in a pile of that it generally means that the ice crystal formula um formation when it was being frozen was incorrectly done and it caused large ice crystals rather than very small ice crystals to be formed and what that does is it punctures the cells and causes the liquid the water to run out of the cells so you got a dry piece of meat and all the liquid is like that plasma stuff sitting in the meat and so for the honey analogy here if you do this incorrectly and create big crystallization points which are done like if you leave something in honey and it can you know there's a there's an invader in the honey like a piece of bread or whatever and it 
sort of grabs around that, you're going to get this separation of like water at the bottom and the honey kind of at the top, and it's not going to be good. So these guys are able to create very microscopic lots and lots of seed points, um, which creates this smooth, opaque honey that is fantastic for spreading on bread, but not you can't pour it. And so I had only ever seen that in person until I was like 12 years old. I'm like, oh, there's yeah. this... R- Our yeah, grandmother. That's exactly what it was. And this runny honey I'd never seen before. And I thought it was like this you know magical stuff that only winnie the pooh got so you know do you so the 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 stuff that you get over here and we have some friends uh, my friends jack and fran who live up in uh in congleton in staffordshire there they have on their um farm they have um hives and they make delicious honey that i've used in some of my cooking and it's the same thing it's this it's this very crystally, um, very you know that our grandmother always always had. Actually, the stuff that our grandmother had slash has is kind of a hybrid of the two. It's it's very thick and goopy. It's absolutely opaque, but it, you could if you had you know several days, it would pour well, out. Well, that of the bottle. I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that um, runny honey can go through that process anyway if it's been left for too long and oh. what you're supposed to. Oh, see, that's interesting because that's that's what happens to my friend's honey is that we get it and it's this beautiful amber color and then it 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 becomes more. You, cr- I mean, it, the flavor profile. If you ban Maria, it, uh, the texture you just does. Put it, not even a ban Maria. You just put it. You just put it yeah. into, into some hot water um, for about five minutes. It will go completely clear unless it's been like professionally seeded. Um, so Granny's was probably taken out of the original tomb, um, and therefore that's why it's sat for so long <laughs> and it's like that. That yeah. So so I'll ask you this though because she the the first application I saw of honey is her putting it and our grandfather putting it on uh on toast could do you do that would you is that something that you would enjoy Yes and no I think I think that if I had it I would eat it it's not something I would necessarily choose to do I think I could have a lot of interesting fun with it is if I find a really interesting kind of bread and maybe um add some stuff to it so so you know I think a little bit of like sea salt like on top of that, it's going to make some really interesting flavors happen. Um, mm. Honey also works very, very idea. well in sweet and savory. So, you know, maybe some Szechuan peppercorns broken up on top of that is going to give an interesting flavor to that. You know, you're not going to be adding anything massively savory on top of that. Um, you're not going to be throwing like a piece of meat on there. Uh, I think that'd be a bit weird, except for, except for Hammond. Uh, sorry, Hammond. Uh, Gammon is the quintessential like savory thing that goes with with honey it's honey glazed and so that works really well uh, yeah see again i don't like that maybe it's just me and honey you you have these the the synthetic honey flavor which is in like honey nut cheerios and all that nonsense which is it's, it's just syrup. sugar it's just it's sweetener it's sugar it's it's not it's nothing to do with honey it's it's a it's an appropriation of the of, of a flavor idea that we have in our heads so we set that aside but I'm, I want to hear from people that listen to this. Do you use honey? Do you like it? How do you use it? And there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it at all. I'm fascinated by honey. I just, I just, I'm not a huge ultra massive honey dork like I know a lot of people are, and I think that that means that I'm missing out. So I'd like to learn more about it. But you, you actually had a conversation with because we always end the show with what would you pair it with, and I think we do we fail to. To say what would you pair think, gin with? <laughs> exactly, Tonic. exactly. I think that we, uh, I can't remember. I, I think that if we go back, gin and tonics go with everything. So you know, there you go. <laughs> okay, yeah. So they pair with everything. It's their their responsibility. But what, you know, honey is a is a base ingredient. What, what, but what if you, you know, what could you produce out of it or pair with it? That so would I, really I, kind I of. I was chatting with Keith, our resident mixologist, although he hates that word. I love that we have a resident <laughs> He's a mixologist now. And I was talking about how this was the episode that we were doing and how my uh, introduction to honey and alcohol was um, hot toddies. And that was a staple of, I don't want to say childhood because that sounds creepy, um, that I'm drinking whiskey, lemon, and honey in hot water at age 14. But Granny had very liberal rules around the house when you're feeling sick. Um, but basically, he was telling me about this this cocktail that sounds like a grown-up or or more sophisticated hot toddy. It's called uh, the penicillin. Um, yes, I know, great. Um, alluding to Honey's uh, curative claims. Um, and so I found this article, or the exact um, link to it on Serious Eats. 
And so it's two ounces of blended scotch scotch whiskey. Um, they suggest famous grouse, but I'm sure you can pick your own fa- your favorite blended scotch. Uh, three quarters of an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Uh, three quarters of an ounce of honey. Uh, they call it honey syrup. So basically, because honey is so thick, you need to sort of make a uh, almost a simple syrup out of honey, which is not that hard to do. Three slices of fresh ginger and a quarter ounce of Isla single malt scotch. This is what they use. And they were suggesting uh, Laphroaig, which is a fantastic scotch if you like that type. And so basically, you're, you're adding everything except for the the Isla um, single malt, you know, together. And then uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You're muddling all the everything in together and then straining it and then you're pouring the uh the Laphroaig if you're using that over the back of a spoon um so that it doesn't penetrate the surface I suppose um and 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 lays on top ah. so you get this hit of uh of Laphroaig as this the smell as you're as you're smelling it and then you you drink the rest of it and it's like we sorry uh we know ginger is fantastic for people we know that honey has a lot of good things for uh, you know potentially for you uh lemon juice lemon in general citrus is great for you so this is like and whiskey you know created the scottish people who are the hardiest people in the world um so the penicillin it really sounds like if you're starting to feel a bit snuffly a bit you know sick come winter time drink a couple of these before work and you might get fired but you'll feel better so like you know that's the thing that uh keith was mentioning but i think it's a great use of honey honey in a syrup honey in uh, cocktails it's just something that works it has that floralness without just being sugar i i i'm intrigued next i will will keith make us one yeah absolutely we'll make sure that he he does that and uh We'll have to try one because I've never tried one. So um, no, it sounds good. It sounds good. Well, again, like I, I feel like I'm, I'm not experiencing honey on the level that so many of you are in the world. So <laughs> I want to know more. I want to know like pure applications of honey, not, not honey nut X or honey glazed Y. I want. I use honey because in this instance because it's so much better than any other possible ingredient I could use. And that cocktail was a pretty good start <laughs> yeah exactly uh i'm i'm resisting the urge to sing the honeycomb jingle uh it's just going through my head right now before before we wrap up i, I do want to do one last call out uh, one last shout out sorry our my my good friend uh mike was telling me the other day that his mom had recently discovered the podcast and had been Uh-oh. just sort of binging her way through it and he said yeah she's absolutely loving it thinks it's great um however she almost turned it off on the pizza episode i'm like why because she was like if you ever say a bad word about pizza uh, pineapple on the pizza she's not going to listen ever again apparently pineapple pizza is all that grace holder drinks uh, eats sorry so grace i apologize if we uh insulted you in any way but uh keep listening <laughs> i like i hi grace i i love <laughs> Pineapple on pizza. I think that that was the weirdest thing for people to get butthurt about. <laughs> pineapple on pizza. I mean, there are so many other food atrocities that we need to come to terms with before we talk about pineapple on, on pizza. Yes. It's, uh, no. All it's right. It's fine. It's fine. Well, uh, I think well, we've wrapped up. What's next? Well, that's the thing. It's I, um, you know. Oh, dear. I know. Intoxication. <laughs> Insulin. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, there, there, there are... I think we're gonna get a little esoteric with I. Um, we'll have to see what what comes up in our in our in our, uh, in our searches. But if you have a suggestion, feel free to reach out to Alex or I or directly to the mastication.ntn Twitter. Um, and feel free to write us a review. We do read them. Um, and you know we do 100%. we do get um uh, you know recommendations from there. So uh, feel free to jump on to iTunes or wherever you listen to us, and feel free to uh, reach out and let us know what you think. Uh, other than that we'll try and uh get on top of uh keeping this a bit more regular uh hopefully life doesn't get in the yeah, way we're doing pretty well this between last episode and this episode and the other thing i want to uh, ask you good beautiful people to do is post on twitter and tag us what the best thing that you ate during the week was or the t- between our, our various recordings because i some of the pictures of, of food that people have sent uh, an attache viewer just sent me some pictures of food he was eating in cape town some cape malay lay food that was just beautiful so send us uh some pictures of what you are eating this week and what the best thing you ate was this yes. week. because i want to know and to sort of piggyback on that uh one of our listeners um suggested the concept of doing a christmas episode um 
Yes. So Christmas. That was a really good yeah, idea. Yeah. So Christmas. Mean, maybe you can look it up while I'm, I'm talking about it. But uh, so Christmas around the world, Christmas in different cultures. Feel free to, you know, we'd love to hear for you from you on what Christmas is like in your hometown, in your country. What are some of the, uh, the classic culinary items that most people it, don't know? Yeah, it was Owen Turner uh, who who's come up at, at us with a few great ideas in the past, um, and uh, I think that's a great idea. Be- and it will piss off just about everybody because <laughs> Christmas is such a like a, an institution. And we're not so biased I, here, so like you know, what are you doing around Hanukkah? What are you doing around Kwanzaa? The whole winter festival thing. Let us know what you're doing and and how that how that um, you know your culinary world is impacted. For for us who've lived in a couple different countries, you know, we've always brought our traditions, but South African Christmas traditions are very different from Hong Kong. Are very yeah, different from yeah. England. I want to know. I want to know what we want to know what your Christmas looks like, and we will do an episode before Christmas, probably actually next month, so that if anything that comes up that you guys think, oh shit, I want to make that, then we'll figure out a way to, to tell you how to make it. And this so will be outside know. of the the alphabet, just as yeah, our we'll Christmas break spell. Yeah, we'll Yeah. Well, on that final note, uh, until next time, we'll enjoy your food. 